People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. This is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note here on Fine Music Radio. We have a literary theme today, poetic, literary, because I'm talking to the acclaimed novelist and poet, Fanula Dowling, who lives here in Cape Town, who is a poet, as I said, and his new book has just been published to great acclaim called The Man Who Loved Crocodile Tamers. And a number of people have written amazing things about it. For example, Nancy Richards, who, as you know, is one of our colleagues here, describes it as a long and intense book which kept me sustained for a long stretch and became a friend. But I had to keep stopping to reread a sentence, reflect a while on its deeper or double meaning, to break away and look up a word. While you might know what it means, how skillful it's use in a phrase. Occasionally I lost the thread of the story by getting so caught up in the words. That's a review that Nancy Richards wrote of the man who loved crocodile tamers. It's quite an evocative title. Welcome, Fanula, first of Thank all. Thank you, Rodney. It's good to have you here. And this book has received a lot of very, very good press. Did you expect that? It must be a lovely feeling. I didn't expect it. I thought people might not like it because of the way in which it was different from my earlier novels. For one thing, it has an historical theme. And, yeah, I think of all my books, this one terrified me the most. And, and it was really difficult to write. You talk about doubt sitting on your shoulders as though it's a character um, almost teasing you not to write. Which you, right at the beginning, you talk about how you struggled with doubt. Well, I think... I did want in this book to convey some of the pain of writing um, because one of the themes of the book is having a writing aspiration because um, the book is is based on my father's life, um, Paddy Dowling. And I suppose I'd always known something interesting about my father, although he was otherwise a very mysterious man. And that was the fact that his wedding to my mother in London in 1951 was nearly interrupted by a crocodile tamer who was in high dudgeon because she felt he was engaged to her. And there was a feeling that she might interrupt the wedding with one of her crocodiles. Are and you serious? <laughs> yes. Are you serious? And so um, they got the strongest and biggest priests, Ros Rosminian priests, to stand outside St. Ethelreda's Ely Place in case this tiny crocodile tamer <laughs> arrived with one of her beasts. Um, but that never happened. And so um, I don't know why I didn't, you know, at the beginning of my career two decades ago, think, well, there's a theme for a novel. Mm. Why it only came to me recently. I think in some ways you have to be, some books require you to be a bit older and a bit more experienced. Um, and in order to write my father's life, I certainly had to have become the sort of person who's experienced the dark night of the soul because my father did have a very unhappy end and and was, I suppose, anxious and depressed, which led him to drink. So the book is structured. I mean, you said to me earlier you found the book difficult to read. Yes, I haven't settled into it yet because it is written. It's not just a narrative. It's written in a... A curious way, shall we say. Yeah. It's, it's sort of metafictional in that 
there's a, a frame narrative in which Gina, who's, a, I suppose, a, a distant alter ego of Fanula Dowling, is trying to write a novel about her father, whose wedding oh, is nearly interrupted. Right, right. And so we, we keep dipping back into Gina's problems, writing the book that you, the reader, actually have in your hand. And then the rest of the novel is a fictionalized version of using the few strands I did have about my father's life, of his trajectory um, and, and death in his 50s. It's, as you've just said, Finula, it's a book that weaves fact and fiction together, but at the heart of it, this very, very personal story about your father. What did you feel about sharing this with the great uh, outdoors, I mean, the readers out there, not only in writing the book, the subsequent interviews and so on? Did it not feel as though you were exposing yourself too much, or how was it? Was it therapeutic, cathartic? It turned out to be very therapeutic. You know, we buried our father in an unmarked grave because of the difficult and embarrassing circumstances he died in. And now, and in the course of writing the book, um, my family put together an um, epitaph for him and went to Musenberg Cemetery and found his grave and established it and have planted flowers on it. Um, So in that sense, it was therapeutic, not just for me, um, and I, I do think, you know, time heals relationships and we mm. get a perspective. So it was very healing for me in the sense that the book enabled me to get away from there was that this picture of my father as um, a disreputable alcoholic who collapsed in Main Road, Cork Bay and had to be carried home by my brothers and to go back into how, how did that happen? Um, what kind of man was he before? Um, to see the impact in particular of, of World War II on him, of being somebody who had to sweep for mines, a very nervous person um, being turned into a sapper in the Italian campaign and, and how that must have been for him, always near explosives, probably explosives going off near him and seeing atrocities. And, and for me to understand that some of what I saw as a child was actually post-traumatic stress disorder, which actually only entered the DSM two or three years after his death. Mm-hmm. It's the, the great sadness. And to be able to restore the whole life from childhood, not evading the death, not trying to cover it up. And pretend it didn't but happen. But to see it as part of a whole life. And you tell me the reason you put this Carl Jung quote at the beginning, the greatest tragedy of the family is the unlived lives of the parents. Yeah. That's quite a sentence to get your head around. Yeah. Well, I probably, I don't know if I'm uh, misreading Jung, but what I saw in that quote applied so perfectly to both my parents. Both of them had wanted to be writers, and yet my father ended up as a copywriter, you know, just churning out advertising slogans, and, and my mother was able to do radio broadcasts, but her aspirations to write plays and novels also failed probably because of having so many children. <laughs> um, and it was just interesting to me writing this book that realizing now, um, as I approach my 60th birthday, I am, in some ways, I have what they, some of what they had wanted, which is to be a published writer. And to see that, well, to see that part of the sadness of the family was that these two incredibly talented people were forced, like so many talented people, to earn their living in other ways. Mm. Vanula, let's see what you've chosen music-wise, just to take a break now. What's your first piece of music? My first piece of music is Green Sleeves, which 
my father famously made my mother walk up the aisle to. So there she was. To, I hope the, the calming tune of green sleeves helped her as she thought about the crocodile tamer <laughs> possibly walking in at that point. I've always found it a very soothing piece of music. And, of course, it's also the tune for a Christmas song, What Child Is This? And we, right. we have, were great Catholics, and I remember that from Midnight Mass. Thank you. 
That's the Fantasy on Green Sleeves, the beautiful tune. The Fantasy is by Vaughan Williams on that famous tune, Green Sleeves. And it was the first choice of music by my guest, Fanula Dowling, here on People of Note on Fine Music Radio this week, whose new book, The Man Who Loved Crocodile Tamers, has just been released and, as I said, is getting jolly good reviews and is quite an experience to get into, <laughs> as I said earlier, Fanula. But tell me a little bit, is it this crocodile tamer? It was actually a person, the one that yeah. was going to... I mean, did your father fall in love with her? My father fell in love with her. He never spoke about his life, so I had to imagine the circumstances in which they, they fell in love. But um, I never really thought about it. I had a vague idea her name was Karinga, and somewhere in 2014 I was writing another novel, and I was sitting by the fire with my sister Cara and said... Um, you know, our parents had such different destinies, the one so happy and popular and the other so depressed with such a sad end. But wasn't it interesting that Daddy was engaged to, what was she? Was she a, a snake charmer? What was her name? Karinga. And then you, you know how you are on a cold winter's mm. night. She got out her laptop and she started Googling. And we first typed in the wrong spelling and Google couldn't help. And then we typed in Karinga. And Google just sort of exploded into thousands of results with images and even uh, black and white uh, video footage of this woman, mostly scantily dressed in leopard skin and a little brassier top, um, and with her hair all teased out, her face painted green. And um, she would run up stairs made of swords. She um, had a boa constrictor. She put her head inside the jaws of her alligators. She was buried alive on stage, and um, this for me was absolutely fascinating because I thought we had a father who attracted <laughs> what, someone like this. Someone like this who was one of the most famous women of her, performers yes. of her era, and they said at one point she was earning the same as a Neville Chamberlain. She, you know, she was headhunted by Bertram Mills, and so left France where she had her origin. She was actually a, a French national who pretended to be Indian, Karinga, things you can't do today. And um, and she must have been earning a great deal of money. She was extremely famous. Um, and, and I thought, so my father, this mysterious man who didn't speak very much, certainly not about his life, he was very full of Irish stories and, and fairy tales. It was just wonderful for me as a writer to be able to explore what, through fiction, mm. how possibly they could have met. Mm. Yeah. But how do you think they met, which presumably is in the book? In the book, they meet when he's 12 years old, because one of the things I did know about my father was that his mother kept sending him away. She sent him away to boarding school, and she sent him away to France in the lovely summer holidays. He was born in England and um, to, to improve his French. And my mother had said that um, she, her mother-in-law didn't want my father around because she wanted to have love affairs, her husband having died in, in World War I. Um, and so I had this image of this lonely boy being sent to France in his school holidays, and I, I think I wanted to give my child, friend, father a gift of something. And instead of having him meet Karinga when he was in his 30s, I thought, let him meet her when he's 12 years old and she's 16. And he's in Marseille. <laughs> he's, he's going to this French school where he's going to have to spend his holidays studying French. And the taxi he's in pulls up slowly behind a circus van. And in the back of the van, with her legs dangling over the board, 
um, is this gorgeous young creature who's holding an alligator and she locks eyes with Paddy and then she opens the jaws of her alligator and puts her head inside and makes it clear to him she's doing this for him. And I think for me, um, what I could see in my father's relationship with Karinga was he loved her death-defying nature. She was not scared of anything. Mm -hmm. And uh, whereas I think he was scared. His own father had died in the war. I think he was an anxious man. Mm -hmm. And he was attracted to, in Karinga and in my mother, to women who skrkvenniks. <laughs> skrkvenniks. <laughs> was your mother like that as well? Absolutely. Was she? But then how did this relationship develop? Did it come to anything with Karinga? They must have had a love affair because she was suing him for breach of promise at the end. Oh. So in the, in the novel, I, I make it a relationship that is intermittent in the sense that he has to carry on with his life and she carries on with her touring. Um, but I do know that she sued him for 600 pounds, uh, which would have been about 400,000 rand um, in today's terms. Mm. And that my mother's relatives had to sell some jewelry to pay her off. So oh that's, my. yeah. Oh, gosh. So did your mother, and this was presumably, I'm just getting my head around this, before your father met your mother? Yes. Okay. So by the time you met your mother and married her, Karinga was out of the picture? Well, she was there right up until the last minute because... Uh, only one of my mother's diaries survives, and it's the diary in which she receives a packet from Karinga. She's never heard of Karinga before, and she gets a packet, and it's full of my father's love letters to her. And Oof. Karinga's saying to my mother, she's writing on her special notepaper, she has her own letterhead, um, and she says, this is the man you're going to marry who keeps saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, to me. Oh, dear. That couldn't have been very good for your mother. Luckily, my yeah. mother had such a strong sense of drama um, that I think she was quite excited by it. She felt she was in a novel or a play. <laughs> right. But everything you've described for Luna so far does sound like a novel. It sounds like a novel. Meanwhile, we're talking about, in a sense, your autobiography as Gina. Is that right? Yes, we are. We are talking about the origins of this family, mm. the, the Darling family. Right. And so, therefore, what you're saying now is going to make it easier for me to read. But you do, as you said, what phrase did you use earlier? Uh, like frames. A frame. Because when I had, because all the dippings in I did, I was very confused as to where and what was happening. So I turned back a page to see how the previous chapter had ended. And very often there wasn't a link, whether you're talking about an old washing machine when you worked at a call center and the anger coming from that, or whether you're talking about whatever, it's it's jumpy, and I don't mean that negatively, by the way. Do you understand what I mean? Yes, I don't think it's a book you can dip into from no, any No, clearly any, that was a mistake. And yeah. It's an interesting form of reading, Rodney. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Most people do read from page one. Um, I so do normally, if, but I only got your book relatively <laughs> recently, and I, I was intimidated by it. How about that? Yes. So, yeah, I wanted to track the progress so that the reader would um, keep moving back to the problem of how is this book being written? How is it possible to write a book about your father? Um, and what are the circumstances of, of writing? Mm -hmm. Let's have another piece of music, Fanula. What are you going to choose this time? Well, the next piece is the song Hello Mada, Hello Fada. <laughs> which just for me has such associations of growing up in this big happy family 
where spoken word and comical music were just so important to us and where, you know, humor in our family wasn't just a diversion. It was actually a way of thinking about life. So whenever there was any tragedy or sadness in our family, we would find the funny side. And um, this music takes me back to going off to Musenberg Library to borrow records. Oh, remember when you could do that. (laughs) With comic songs on. And and we would go in a bunch and all eight of us would be taken to the library. And I later in life met the Musenberg librarian in her retirement. And she said, I remember your family coming and your mother would always leave one of you behind by accident. (laughs) Did that happen? (laughs) I think it did. There were too many of us. Oh, right. Okay, this is a famous uh, little comedy sketch. So let's have a listen. Mother, hello, father. Here I am at Camp Granada. Camp is very entertaining, and they say we'll have some fun if it stops raining. I went hiking with Joe Spivey, he developed poison ivy. You remember Leonard Skinner. He got ptomaine poisoning last night after dinner All the counselors hate the waiters And the lake has alligators And the head coach wants no sissies So he reads to us from something called Ulysses Now I don't want this should scare you But my bunkmate has malaria you remember Jeffrey Hardy They're about to organize a searching party Take me home, oh motherfada Take me home, I hate Granada Don't leave me out in the forest Where I might get eaten by a bear Take me home I promise I will not make noise or mess the house with other boys. Oh, please don't make me stay. I've been here one whole day. (laughs) Dearest father, darling mother, how's my precious little brother? Let me come home if you miss me. I would even let Aunt Bertha hug and kiss me Wait a minute It stopped hailing Guys are swimming Guys are sailing Playing baseball Gee, that's better Modafada, kindly disregard this letter Oh, I haven't heard that for years, Fanula. Famous old comedy sketch there. Hello, mother. Hello, father. Based, incidentally, on part of the Dance of the Hours from Ponchielli's opera La Gioconda and bringing back some memories for you, Fionola. Fanula Dowling is my guest on People of Note this week. We're talking about her new novel, well, sort of autobiographical novel called The Man Who Loved Crocodile Tamers. But as I said at the beginning, 
you're also a poet, a poet and a novelist. Do you have to switch your poetic voice off when you're sitting down to write a novel? Because people, and I think, again, it was Nancy Richards who spoke so wonderfully about your words, and you almost expect a poet to be too flowery in a novel, but you don't do that. Well, I think I do. The poetry does help me when I'm writing. That, that There's just this sense of the joy in words, which I think Nancy is talking about in her review when she says she has to pause because the words take over from the storyline. Uh, perhaps that's a fault, but it's, <laughs> it's something that I enjoy doing is just relishing words. But the difference for me between po- poetry is very much my first love. It's where I started being published um, Poetry taught me to to write in this in this honest voice and not to put on any kind of pretense, which I think is important because your real voice does come through. Um, but the thing I love about fiction is that it gives you a longer time span that you can play with, whereas, whereas poetry is famous for just being in the moment. You know, mm. this mm. arrive late, leave early. <laughs> yes. And how would you describe your poetry? Is it intensely personal? Um, how would you describe your poetry um it's personal and it's um tragic comic i suppose would be yeah, the two yeah. um ways of describing it um i was set off i'd always wanted to be a writer but what really set me off was somewhere uh around the age of 38 39 i had a love affair that broke my heart and then the only place to go was poetry and i, and I wrote about i don't know three or four heartbreak poems and then this funny thing happened this these funny poems started coming out. It's like, it's like um, there had to be a clearing of the source, of the water source. You know, you have to get the, the leaves away. and the then blockage. And then this other voice. This, um, and so I discovered my own voice, which is tragicomic, which is a mixture of the two. Um, now, Fanula, you were famously married to Guy Willoughby, whom many, many people knew for his writing, and he was a comedian as well. And he died tragically of AIDS. But he, you were mentioning to me, actually got you going, didn't he, when you had written your first story or poem. Just tell us that story. Yes, we were married, and in fact, I was um, pregnant. We both had literary aspirations. Guy was doing a lot better than me in that front. And he'd been away on on a scholarly fellowship, um, I think, to Canada. And when I picked him up at the airport, I said, you know, while you were away, I wrote a short story hoping to enter the Cosmopolitan competition but today is the last day for entries and I I don't think I can get it in in time and he said we're going to drive to Pretoria you're going to print out that story put it in an envelope we're going to drive back to Johannesburg and you're going to submit it and I did and I came third in this competition and at the prize ceremony my little baby daughter was sleeping in a carry cot underneath the elegant dining room table (laughs) there was a wonderful moment in my life and I couldn't have done it without guy's confidence in me and his own sense of ambition and if you if there's something you want go and get it Mm. whereas i was far too reticent and is that how your relationship continued with guy because did did he share with you and encourage you and vice versa i think there was um encouragement and and sharing um he would always share his work with me and i would be his first reader but there was also a rivalry, which became problematic later on. Um, so it was, he said to me, oh, well, you've written a novel, now I'm going to write a novel. 
he also wrote poetry. Um, we were both we both had a comic bent. So I think there was a combination of support and rivalry. But I, I can't just sort of underestimate the joy of meeting a fellow mind who loved the same kinds of things that I loved. So it was Bob Dylan, it was Oscar Wilde, it was wit, it was just playing with words. Um, mm. The constant way, the way conversation was an art form for him. Mm. Um, the way that he brought a kind of speaking voice into his writing. Um, that was so helpful to me and an important part of my training. You speak very warmly of him, uh, and even though you got divorced all these years later, you still speak very warmly of him. Well, I think, as I said about my father, time has a way of healing things, and you, you, what you do is you put things into perspective. So obviously the fact that we got divorced means that there was, there was trouble and there was great pain and suffering. It's just taken me all these years to to see that in fact this was a seminal experience in my life and a person who took me out of my shell and and put me on the road to yeah I just keep coming back to this idea that his feeling was if you want to be a writer then write and publish and send it off mm. don't just write mm. send it off don't have doubts sitting don't, on your shoulder. Have, he had no <laughs> doubt sometimes I thought he could have had a little bit of doubt on his shoulder <laughs> but he didn't it was very difficult towards the the end of the marriage, and I think was I trying to trap a free spirit into marriage and and fatherhood? Was that the problem, or was it that he was just an eternal child and um, he loved having people fall in love with him? It was men and women fell in love with him all his life. He was <laughs> just so charismatic. I remember him very well and very very fondly. Fanula, let's have another piece of music. What's next? The next piece of music is I'm a Gnu. by oh, Flanders and Swan. <laughs> which I didn't know was a song, funnily enough. It, it was in a book my mother used for teaching drama students. And I was nine years old and needed to learn a poem off by heart for school. And I came across this piece of writing and I thought, this is marvelous. This is what poetry should be. You know, a year ago last Thursday, I was strolling in the zoo. That's how a poem should begin. Just talk to your audience. Just, um, just converse. So it came as a surprise to me later to hear it as this wonderful song. Here's another animal song. A year ago, last Thursday, I was strolling in the zoo when I met a man who thought he knew the lot. He was laying down the law about the habits of baboons and the number of quills a porcupine has got. So I asked him, what's that creature there? He answered, oh, it's a helk. I might have gone on thinking that was true. If the animal in question hadn't put that chap to shame and remarked, I ain't a helk. I'm a gunu. <laughs> I'm a gunu. I'm a gunu. The gunnicest work of gun nature in the zoo. I'm a gunu. How you do? You really ought to can know wahoo's wahoo. I'm a gunu. Spelt G-N-U. I'm gun not a camel or a kangaroo. So let me introduce, I'm neither man or moose, so gano, 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 I'm a gano. 
I had taken furnished lodgings down at Rustington-on-Sea, whence I travelled on to Ashton-under-Lyme, it was actually. And the second night I stayed there, I was wakened from a dream, which I'll tell you all about some other time. Among the hunting trophies on the wall above my bed, stuffed and mounted, was a face I thought I knew. A bison. No, it's not a bison. An okapi. It's unlikely, really. Could it be a hearty beast? Then I seem to hear a voice. I'm a ganu. I'm a ganu. A ganother ganu. I wish I could ganash my teeth at you. I'm a ganu. How do you do? You really ought to know wahoo's wahoo. I'm a ganu, spelled G-N-U. Call me bison or a copy and I'll sue. Ganor am I in the least like that dreadful hearty beast. Oh, gano, gano, gano. Gano, 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 I'm a gano. Gano, gano, gano. I'm a gano. Some vintage humour there. That's Flanders and Swan and their GNU song. And it's interesting that that really grabbed your attention uh, when you were, what, nine years old? Nine years old, Learning yes. poetry. Well, of course, people who know me call me NU, as short for Fanula. So I thought it was being uh, written for me. I'm a GNU, <laughs> spelled G-N-U. G-N-U. You know what, uh, on the more, well, I don't know on the serious side, just going back slightly... When you were much, much younger, had you always had a flair to want to write? Did literature and poetry always interest you when you were a child or a schoolgirl? Oh, yes. Um, I just I grew up in this house where books and stories and and spoken word was so important. Um, my mother read to us every night. And I, I just I remember her reading Kipling at one stage, the Just So stories, you know. Hear and attend and listen, O oh best beloved. And she had this beautiful voice trained in London. Um, and I think I just associated literature with the highest pleasure. And then my father would come home from work, pour a whiskey, and we four girls, we were the youngest, the four boys came first. And we would arrange ourselves either on the armrests of his chair or on his lap and he would make up a story in which we were the four roses and he was the butterfly who saved us from terrible danger. And so I so wanted to be a writer that I took my baby sister, Cara, and plonked her in her nappy down in front of me. And I was three to her zero. And I said, now I'm going to read to you. But I didn't know how to read. So I sat with a book open and expounded. <laughs> um, yeah. What a lovely story that is. <laughs> It says here, you were entranced by folk tales and fairy tales, the more obscure the better, when you were very young. Yes, I remember well, to go back to Musenberg Library, and um, I said to my mother, I like fairy tales, but now I've heard them all. And she said, no, but you haven't read all the folk tales of the world. And she took me to the Russian and uh, the, the whole array of world folk tales mm -hmm. and so all of that was deeply embedded in me I can't imagine a life without reading and I sometimes find the life in books more real to me than real life well there's another little quote here where you say writing is a way of grappling with things you don't understand which is an interesting thing to consider I think I do when I start writing either a poem or a novel 
there is a sense of I've come here in a state of helplessness and the writing is going to help me out of it. It's as if you have the answers in your unconscious, which your writing hand finds. <laughs> That's a lovely way of putting it. Also, and this also surprised me, and I'm quoting from an interview you had with someone uh, who says, you aren't the hugest fan of plot, um, especially when life sometimes feels cruelly random and others merely tedious and repetitive. I think there's a very important distinction between plot and story. I mean, story has an ending, a resolution, that a kind of message at the end. And I'm very mm. strong on that. I I do work towards story. But plot where you suddenly, um, everything is neatly sewn up and it usually involves a discovery. Somebody's been hiding a secret and the secret is dramatically revealed. And I don't think life works like that. I'm much more interested in depicting how life is and just showing it in a heightened way for my readers. Your previous novels, are they very different from this one that we've been discussing today? Yes, I mean, this, one of the reasons it was so terrifying to write this book was my previous novels have been so locally set. I became known, perhaps in a stereotypical <laughs> way, as the Corpe author and with so many scenes set in Corpe and people would love my depictions of the local. And then writing this book, well, I had my father's passport in front of me and I could see these stamps for Sweden and Geneva and all over the world. And I thought, I'm going to have to extend myself and, and write in a very different way. I've also always written contemporary novels and this one was historical. So um, a very different novel and, and that was yeah one of the reasons I was in trepidation about it. <laughs> yes. But it's had such good response, as we've heard from critics and all that, so you must feel jolly pleased with yourself. But um, when do you write? Do you have a very strict discipline with writing? Yeah, the two things I would say about that is I write every day, um, even if I'm not writing a novel or working on a particular poem. Not every day. I, Monday to Friday, I write about a 1,000 words every morning. And it's early morning? Early, early morning. I get about half past five. And I know I sound painfully <laughs> no, disciplined, but it's, it's necessary for me. And I, everything about the previous day I record. Sometimes when I'm writing a novel or a poem, I, I can go back to that record and see if there's something there that will help me. But then when I'm writing a novel, there is a day one where you start. So you've been thinking about this book, you've been collecting ideas, you've maybe got some notebooks with some things, maybe you've uh, got some books you've been researching, but there's day one. And then I again try to have a word count of a thousand words a day, but I always have a bottom level, which is that Virginia Woolf only wrote 200 words a day. So I think, okay, <laughs> it's either going to be me or Virginia today. <laughs> okay, and when you get stuck, if you, do you have writer's block? And how, if you do, how do you deal with that? I, I'm not sure that I believe in writer's block. I think writer's block happens. The, the not being able to write happens when your conscious brain is insisting that you go in one particular direction. And the story that's actually inside you knows you need to go in another way. Another way. And so you, there's this impasse within you. Mm. And these two forces are battling. And it's only when this um, authoritative, conscious, um, self-pleased 
<laughs> personality within you steps back and you let the, the, the inner, the deeper flow. There's something that um, is almost shy within you and you let it come out. So I am, I'm now accustomed to that. And I know that when I can't write, it's the time for my head to pull back and, and let my heart out. Oh, that's, I shall remember that if ever I want to become a writer. <laughs> but anyway, what's your next piece of music, Fanula? My next piece of music relates to a person we were discussing earlier, Guy Willoughby, who was such a fan of Bob Dylan. And, and we shared the uh, enjoyment of Bob Dylan's music and particularly his lyrics. Um, it's, it's hard rain, early Bob Dylan. But obviously, in my marriage to Guy Willoughby, I became an expert on the full range of, of Dylan's music. And there was no party without Dylan present. Um, there, was, there was no day in which we didn't quote Bob Dylan. Um, he was the poet laureate of our household. Oh, where have you been, my blue-eyed son? And where have you been, my darling young one? I've stumbled on the side of twelve misty mountains I've walked and I crawled on six crooked highways I've stepped in the middle of seven side forests I've been out in front of a dozen dead oceans I've been 10,000 miles in the mouth of a graveyard And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard rain You're gonna fall Oh, what did you see, my blue-eyed son? And what did you see, my darling young one? I saw a newborn baby with wild wolves all around it I saw a highway of diamonds with nobody on it I saw a black branch with blood that kept dripping I saw a room full of men with their hammers a-bleeding I saw a white ladder all covered with water I saw ten thousand talkers whose tongues were all broken so guns and sharp swords in the hands of young children And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard And it's a hard, it's a hard rain They're gonna fall hey, What did you hear, my blue-eyed son? And what did you hear, my darling young one? I heard the sound of a thunder that roared out a warning I heard the roar of a wave that could drown the whole world I heard one hundred drummers whose hands were a-blazing 
heard 10,000 whispering and nobody listening I heard one person starve, I heard many people laughing I heard the song of a poet who died in the gutter I heard the sound of a clown who cried in the alley And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard It's a hard, it's a hard rains are gonna fall Oh, what did you meet, my blue-eyed son? And who did you meet, my darling young one? I met a young child beside a dead pony I met a white man who walked a black dog I met a young woman whose body was burning I met a young girl, she gave me a rainbow I met one man who was wounded in love I met another man who was wounded in hatred And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard It's a hard, it's a hard rains are gonna fall And what'll you do now, my blue-eyed son? And what'll you do now, my darling young one? I'm a going back out for the rain starts a falling. I'll walk to the depths of the deepest dark forest. Where the people are many and their hands are all empty. Where the pellets of poison are flooding their waters Where the home in the valley meets the damp, dirty prison And the executioner's face is always well hidden Where hunger is ugly, where the souls are forgotten where black is the color, where none is the number And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, and it's a hard, it's a hard rains are gonna fall.
Bob Dylan there. That was called what? Hard Rain, hard Fanula. Rain. Hard Rain. Fanula Dowling, uh, the poet and novelist, is my guest on People of Note this week here on Fine Music Radio. And I just want to say we've talked a lot about your book, your latest book, The Man Who Loved Crocodile Tamers, which is a very curious title um, that makes you want to read the book, actually. As someone said, it's a defining seminal work, so to speak, this one in your in your output. What's What could be next now that you've done something like this? What could be next is I might uh, write something that involves history again. But I'm also really drawn to this first-person voice, this Gina voice. And, you know, in a way, it's coming full circle in my mind. My first novel was written in the first person. And I myself have always loved the first person. Um, I mean, witness my first choice. Hello, mother. Hello, father. You know, here <laughs> I am. <laughs> yeah. And um, I and my writing every morning in my, my diary is an I. It's a, it's a direct voice. And I think I'd like to return to that um, and also perhaps incorporate some history. So there is, there are some various germs in my mind, germs in the good sense, um, that I'm working on. Um, and I might take some time off later this year to start the new one. Okay, so Gina, that this is her first appearance, your invention, I.E.U., could she ever be a character in another novel where it is the first person because it is you, but her name happens to be Gina? I don't think I would do that, although it, I'm, I'm always quite charmed when people imagine sequels for my characters as they have. You know, mm. can you bring that character back? I, I love that. Um, but I, I, I keep moving on to the next thing. But it would certainly have overtones of Gina. I think what writers do is they keep exploring different aspects of their selves. So Gina is one part of me, but I think there's there's another part that might want to speak in the next yes. novel. And Gina was very associated with this particular story, wasn't she, uh, in a sense that this is her book, so maybe it's unfair to use her anywhere else. Yes. <laughs> he no, said she's, speculating. She's, she must stay there. I think. She must stay in that book. So also... Um, your daughter apparently is a bit of a writer. Yes, it's um, so interesting that um, Beattie, when she was, we christened her Beatrice um, and call her Beattie, she early on said to me, Mummy, I want to be a writer, but I don't want to be poor like you. So, oh, so what can I do? And I said, well, you'll have to become a copywriter. And she duly went off to um, advertising school and was top of her class and is a very sought-after copywriter in Cape Town. And she writes poetry too, um, lots of wonderful poems both to me and to Guy, and poems about her life. And I, I just hope she will be given the opportunity somewhere or grab it to um, explore her own writing and not, not only have to write in a, in a commercial sense. Do you look at her poetry in a critical way and advise and help, or do you leave her to have her own voice? Well, what I find so interesting is that she asks for my critique. She, um, I now um, offer creative writing courses, and one of my courses is, is a poetry course. And she said, Mommy, can I, um, can I sign on? I said, yes. Um, I said, <laughs> girls called Beatrice do my course for free. And, <laughs> and she wrote wonderful poems, but I treated her just as I treat all my other students. You, you get praise and you get a, little, a few suggestions in the margin. And, mm -hmm. and she's, 
she's wonderful with accepting critique. Just as a final nostalgia thing before I let you play your last piece of music, you mentioned your father Paddy as being a copywriter and also wrote a number of famous ads and you were quoting, just to jog people's memory, the Gunston ad. How did it go? Well, there was going to Gunston, but there was also men rate Gunston great. And he wrote that sort of thing. He wrote that, and he wrote the Eno's advert. Ah, Eno's. <laughs> really? And those were so famous on Springbok Radio, weren't they, in those days? Yeah, and I think we underestimate the, <clears throat> the talent that goes into writing adverts. Yes, because they have to be short, and they've got to get a very powerful message across very quickly and in a grabbing sort of way. Fanula, it's been very interesting talking to you. I'm going to take this book home now and I'm going to sit down and I'm going to read it from page one, as you suggested earlier. Um, but um, so thanks for coming by. Thank you. And it's been lovely to chat to you. And um, I would like you to uh, what are we going to hear to end? To end, we're going to hear Where Have All the Flowers Gone? And I've asked for the Marlene Dietrich version because um, my father fell in love with my mother when he heard her on the radio singing her probably once and only radio singing um, opportunity in a voice like Marlena Dietrich, um, a kind of low and speaking voice. But husky the, sort yes, of sound. husky. But the song itself has other connotations for me because, you know, just in the late 1970s and early 1980s, um, we had a kind of salon society at our house in Cork Bay. We were teenagers or in our early 20s. And uh, we would have people around and they would have guitars and we would sing songs like Where Have All the Flowers Gone? And it was such a wonderful sort of anti-war song. Mm, and many, so. many boys, including our brothers, were being sent to the border in an unjust war at that time. Um, and so it, it just brings back for me just it was a wonderful time of, of freedom. We, our father had died and so some of the pain of the end of his life had, had left us. And there was a sense of our own lives beginning. So, that's And with a song like this, it's appropriate now, isn't it, with what's going on in Ukraine? It's so, so important to have songs Where like this. Where have all the flowers gone? Fanula, darling, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you, Rodney. Where have all the flowers gone? Long time passing. Where have all the flowers gone? Long time ago Where have all the flowers gone? Young girls pick them everyone When will they ever learn? When will they ever learn? Where have all the young girls gone? Long time passing where have all the young girls gone Long time ago Where have all the young girls gone Gone to young men everyone When will they ever learn When will they ever learn Where have all the young men gone Long time passing Where have all the young men gone Long time ago Where have all the young men gone Gone to soldier everyone When 
will they ever learn? When will they ever learn? Where have all the soldiers gone? Long time passing. Where have all the soldiers gone? Long time ago. Where have all the soldiers gone? Gone to graveyards, everyone. When will they ever learn? When will they ever learn? Where have all the graveyards gone? Long time passing. Where have all the graveyards gone? Where have all the graveyards gone? Gone to flower everyone. When will they ever learn? When will they ever learn? Where have all the flowers gone? Long time passing. Where have all the flowers gone? Long time ago, where have all the flowers gone? Young girls pick them, everyone. When will they ever learn? When will they ever learn? People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. FMR.